Welcome back to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Jeremy from Utah. And I am Ken from Indiana. Today, we are letting you know the areas where Ken and I disagree. Uh, these are non-primary issues, so it's not like uh, it's heresy versus orthodoxy or anything like that, but Ken and I don't always see eye to eye, and that's because Ken can't be right all the time. So um, we just thought it would be good to let you in on some of those things, or Ken needs to be corrected, and we'll, we can talk about that together. Yeah, about that. Before we get into all of that, we did want to say that today's episode is sponsored by Anchor Outfitters. Anchor is a uh, company started by some friends of ours, and we encourage you to check out their uh, website. They have all kinds of Christian apparel. It's uh, really well done. Uh, So we encourage you to check that out, anchoroutfitters.org, and use the promo code DOTHEOLOGY to get 10% off your next order. Calvinism is much false doctrine as a woman preacher. Well, of course, in fundamentalism, you define everything as a gospel issue. This is a true mark of Christian maturity to discern the difference of issues. I got an idea. Let's not run with anybody who thinks they got another idea. There's a lot of different understandings of what the days are in Genesis 1 and to what degree evolution was part of how God created things. I have disagreements with him in some areas, but those are adiaphora, those are side issues, many important issues. So many Bible doctrines are ruined when we use the wrong words. This is why it's so critical that we use only the King James Bible. You gotta have that right or get out of here. Pray God that I don't take every minor thing and make a major thing out of it. Nothing divides like truth. I respect them as brothers in the Lord with whom I have some strong differences, but they have a big problem with me. Is there a way that we can work together? I think fundamentally we have to say yes. Christians can disagree and still kick it. All right, everybody. Do Theology Season 2. We are letting you in behind the curtain a little bit in this episode to find out more about what we believe on some of the more detailed aspects of theology. But before we get into that, let's do some 90-second life updates. Ken, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Yeah, so we are recording this right at the beginning of July. And it's July 1st. Yes, it is July 1st. Shazam. Time goes fast. And this whole, of course, the whole coronavirus thing has been a thing in America and the world for the better part of this year. The better part or the worst part? Hmm. Mm. <laughs> but we are uh, just in a phase where we are about to get back together in person for our Bible study group for our church plant, and that is super exciting. We are very much looking forward to that. This coming Sunday, July the 5th, will be our first Sunday back together. So we are we're, we're really jazzed about that. And where are you going to be meeting? We are going to be meeting in—actually, another church is letting us use their facility on Sunday evenings— uh, so that's Which is a, a blessing. huge blessing. It is a huge blessing because for a long that was our big hangup. We would have gotten back together faster, except where we had been meeting was just our living room, and according to state guidelines uh, about the coronavirus, we could not meet there and fulfill those guidelines. So we were looking for alternatives. God provided in this other church is letting us use it for the month of July, and then we'll be in another facility from August forward. So. Wow, church plants just in a nomadic existence yep. there. Wow. Yeah, it's a whole new meaning to the term church hopping. <laughs> well, we started meeting in our building again two months ago, 
and that was great after six weeks off. Um, but this Sunday will be my final Sunday before a month-long sabbatical, which I've never done in ministry. I've only been full-time in ministry, uh, truly full-time, for about three years. Um, but we passed some verbiage in our uh, bylaws, uh, this last business meeting that we had, annual business meeting, where we do one uh, one month off for every three years for um, vocational ministers of this church, and I'm the only one. I've been at this church for over six years now, uh, first in a part-time associate role and now in a full-time role. So anyway, uh, really looking forward to that. Also, I've been doing workouts with my wife in the morning, and apparently my leg muscles are awful, and it hurts to do steps right now. <laughs> I can empathize with that a little bit because I just got back from a trip to uh, my in-law's place and I played some football with my brothers-in-law and yeah, <laughs> it's the most running that I've done in probably three or four years. So should have played baseball. What's wrong with you? Yeah, should have played baseball. And you, when you say football, you mean the glorious American sport, not the European garbage, right? Correct. Oh, good. Full tackle. Wow. Yeah. We do it right out in the country. <laughs> For all of you offended soccer fans, soccer's terrible, but Ken actually played soccer, right? I did college. play soccer, so I do not share your uh, sentiments uh, on the uh, virtuousness or lack thereof. It's a great sport. Soccer is a great sport. For girls and Europeans, I agree. All right. Speaking of issues we disagree on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a segue. Uh, so today we're going to look at the second and third column uh, of the chart. If you don't know about the chart, find the description of this episode, get down in there, click that link, and uh, take a gander at that. That will be vital to your understanding of how we're approaching this uh, conversation today. And uh, a lot of the conversation is probably going to end up being in the third column, but there are some second column things that Ken and I disagree on. And, and then we have to say kind of up front as a disclaimer, we went to the same college. We uh, got saved in the same types of churches. We've been around the same types of people. A lot of the same people are in our network yeah. that we know and associate with and fellowship with. So it's not like this is a Presbyterian and um, a... Uh, I don't know, a, a Baptist continuationist or something like that. Okay, these are, we're not that far apart. But uh, there are things that we disagree on, and we thought, hey, what better way to get to know us better and to pick sides, decide which one you like better than to just have this disagreement out in the open. <laughs> so that way, everyone can realize that Ken is weird. But also, That's why we're doing this, right? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, we wanted a model, right? It's model how to disagree peaceably and in a way that, that demonstrates grace for one another, even when the other person is flat out wrong. So, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, let's get started uh, with probably... Um, let, let's, let's start with Calvinism. Uh, probably the one that, uh, you know, people can relate to. Well, I don't know. A lot of these people can relate to really easily, but Calvinism's a, a buzzword. It gets around a lot. Um, Calvinism. We currently are basically at the same place. Mm -hmm. Neither one of us are five-pointers. We're both holding out on limited atonement as it's defined in full-on reform circles. Um, 
but it's not always been this way where we've been at the same place. We were talking before the show. We've known each other for about 10 years. And for roughly six and a half of those years, I called myself a classical or traditional Arminian. Though I never believed you could lose your salvation, I believe the remonstrance of 1610 were more accurate than the what came out of the Synod of Dort, as far as church history goes, I don't believe those original remonstrants that the original Arminians articulated even said you could lose your salvation, but that's a whole different conversation, um, or a, a more detailed conversation. I I placed a lot more emphasis on man's freedom of mm-hmm. the will than I than I currently understand it, and you were you were there before me on that. Yeah, I was. Although I I was never uh, super articulate in my development as you were like you you could cite you know jacob arminius and and go down the line on all these things and 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 you had your blog posts about all of those issues way back in the day i could never articulate my position clearly on a lot of those issues other than i knew i had problems with with the calvinistic approach so i was never i I was never a i don't know what the right word would be um, but I was never a an articulated, intentional Arminian as much as I was. I'm just not a Calvinist. Well, type person. yeah, it, I think it has to do with the presupposition we're all born with that we are autonomous, right? That's the uh, mm-hmm. the lie we're all born believing <laughs> is that <laughs> we are totally free. We're not enslaved to anything. Um, we all just have that presupposition, and it's because in a way we kind of experience life that way. Yeah, we, from yeah. our perspective. Yeah. It seems that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what happens when someone becomes a Christian, though, is then you start living in this weird middle, fa- like middle, um, like in-between kind of theology where you believe that God exists, so you're not, you're not rejecting God, rebelling against God, you're a follower of Jesus, um, but you're not a Calvinist, and so you're like, yeah, God exists and he's sovereign, he's in control, but I'm totally free, and you're trying to like wrestle with that. Because on the one hand, you'll say, uh, every decision that I make is is up to me, and God doesn't ordain everything. And on the other hand, you barely miss getting in a car accident. You say, oh, thank you, Lord, for keeping me from that car accident. Like he was actually controlling what mm-hmm. you were doing with the steering wheel and with your foot and the other car with his steering wheel and his foot on the gas and on the brake and everything else. So it's like you're kind of living this in-between <laughs> phase. And that... That that's a big spectrum, and not everybody's going to land in the same place, of course. But yeah, so it I'm is curious. an evolution. Yeah, I'm curious what what would have been some of the key uh, spurs for you as you kind of begin to I don't know if spurs is the right word, but the the prods, the things that kind of nudged you in a different direction to kind of change your mind on some of those things. Oh yeah, that's easy. Um, very clearly for me, it was Romans eight twenty eight through thirty and Ephesians one. Um, what had annoyed me the most when I was on the other side of the fence was hearing Calvinists um, and perhaps this happened with you in Bible college at some point, I don't know, but hearing people who are more Calvinistic talk about Romans nine all the time mm-hmm. and Rom- Romans nine has it obviously it lends itself to Calvinism and um, everything else, but it's a really complex passage too. Uh, it's not as straightforward and simple as Romans eight twenty eight through 30 and Ephesians one. And, um, it was really kind of getting away from the whole Romans 9 argument uh, and focusing on those two that I just, 
that's what got me. There's no way to faithfully and consistently exegete those passages and come out any flavor of Arminian. There's just not. What? Why are you all smiling? Over there? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just I'm, there's there's a there's a couple things I'm chuckling about because it's it's uh it's funny actually Romans nine was actually what I w- was part of my uh, journey I suppose um I'll, I wouldn't say Romans nine sealed the deal for me but in preaching class our professor uh, had us actually all of us preach through the book of Romans in preaching class in Bible college and he assigned each of us a chapter and we could preach any passage, any any amount of verses from the chapter which we were assigned, because there were 16 of us in the class, there's 16 chapters in Romans, so we preached through the book of Romans, not extensively, not every single verse, but there was one sermon from each chapter in the book of Romans, and I got stuck with chapter 9, hmm. which was a challenge to preach, and I really struggled with that and wrestled through how how can I preach this and just reading it and studying it opened my eyes a little bit to a few things and that's when I began to ask some more questions that led me down a more Calvinistic road. I, I'm, I'm always hesitant to use these words like labels because so many people mean different things by them. Just to one person, you know, Calvinism means something else than it does to somebody else. So that's that's always been kind of a hang-up for me on some things, just in terms of how I express, like, how I describe myself. Like, I don't like saying, I am a Calvinist. I don't like saying that, because yeah. I immediately, I've just put something into somebody's mind that may or, not, may, or may not be an accurate representation of, of what I actually believe. And, and knowing what you believe, you know who's going to get mad at you, when you whenever you say that you're a Calvinist? Uh, Non-Calvinist and and other Calvinists. And other so, Calvinists, right. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no, I mean, there's no right. fruit, no benefit, yeah. nothing positive about even saying it. Especially since we're holding out on the limited atonement, right. there's a whole bunch that say, oh, oh you're yeah. not even a Calvinist. Yep. And yep. yeah, and, and, and I do have a lot of sympathies towards, you know, the issue of like, okay, you know, there's, uh, as Paul wrote, you know, uh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Barnabas, I'm of Cephas. And and there's those issues that I'm sensitive to as well that I don't like saying. I'm a Calvinist because I I don't want to be known as someone who follows the teachings of another man in in that way. Yeah. Is in as far as John Calvin wrote what was consistent with with God's word, then yeah, you know, but I can say that about any theologian across history. Insofar as what they wrote is consistent with God's word, then yes. Sure. But yep. yeah, that that label is not always the most helpful one. Calvinistic is the most I would ever yep. say of myself. And that's, and the, yeah, the last thing I'll say about this is that that was my conclusion three years ago when I wrote a, a post for my website, jeremyhoward.net. At the very end, well, the title of it is Am I a Calvinist? And at the very end, I said, short answer, no. Um, I, I don't say no just so I can give the ever pious yet all too common response, I'm a biblicist, but I say no because Calvinism is so ill-defined today. Um, and so I said I'm fine with saying I'm Calvinistic mm. and not um, necessarily saying that I'm a Calvinist. Um, and also in that post, I said, look, when you look at Romans 8, 28 through 30, um, this is what you have to conclude. Um, if you're consistent, again, that we are foreknown, predestined, 
called, justified, and glorified all by a sovereign God. The foreknowledge is relational. The five actions, God is in the active, we are in the passive. And at the end of the day, what I have to conclude, and this is what I wrote in the article, I must believe that in eternity past, God actively set apart a select group of people out of the whole of humanity, excluding their participation, in order to deliver salvation to them only. So that's great. That's what I mean when I say I'm Calvinistic. But this is not an episode all about Calvinism. No, we, we'll have one of those one day. Someday. Uh, another secondary issue. Th- okay, now these are going to be things that we, from this point forward, things that we currently disagree on. Mm-hmm. Bible translations. You, do you still use the Holman Christian Standard Bible? Uh, I don't use it as... Because it's out of print, right? Yeah, so, okay, so the Holman Christian Standard Bible is still a great translation, in my opinion. <laughs> and for a long time, I actually, I did my teaching from the HCSB, and I did my personal Bible reading and Bible study from the HCSB. The, HC, the HCSB was supplanted by the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and they made a whole bunch of changes and stuff, and some of the changes were understandable. There were other ones that I really wasn't crazy about, Um and so I'm not quite as excited about the CSB as I was about the HCSB. But I used the HCSB for everything for a while, and I don't now. Oh. Well, but I maybe, still like it. Maybe not everything else in this episode is current. Yeah, um, well, I still like it, though, and I so still you, think it's well, a great what do you translation. Use? For teaching? For the whole gamut, just kind of go through the list. Okay, so... Well, I just use the ESV for everything now, I guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, so we're, so we're still different, because um, yeah. I, I preach from the NASB, and when I teach, it's 50-50 NASB and ESV. Mm. Um, for those who have studied textual criticism, the NASB is quite heavily Alexandrian family text, um, as opposed to, say, the King James, New King James line, which is heavily Byzantine. Um and the NASB is literal, word for word, as opposed to something like NIV, thought for thought. Um, what? Why did you like the HCSB? What, what was it? A textual family thing? Was it a translation philosophy thing? What was the? Yeah, pull? so th- I like the HCSB because they, the way they, so yeah, okay, you you mentioned formal equivalence versus thought for thought. You know, it's the whole word for word versus thought for thought thing. Dynamic equivalence versus formal equivalence. Um, and the HCSB tried to take this optimal equivalence route. Which is still what they advertise for the CSB. Yes, it is. Yeah, and, and honestly... Trevin Wax is always talking about that. Right, and, and, and in, in a sense, almost all translations do this to some degree somewhere. There are places where, and, and I, I couldn't pull them up off the top of my head, but I've, I've, I, I've read them and compared them um, to the original languages at the prompting of an article I read, where the NIV is actually more word for word than the even the NASB in a couple of passages. Not not very many, but there's a couple of places where it is. And so all translations make decisions about this. And I like the HCSB because it's tried to strike a balance in between those things where, yes, it's being faithful to the original text and a word for word philosophy, but it also was trying to be very readable and not so clunky. Sometimes the NASB is a little bit clunky. Um, and so it tried to it tried to get away from that and the woodenness of things, and it helped 
uh, places where there were idioms, Hebrew idioms, where a lot of places would just translate it word for word, and then we read it and we go, huh? Because it's an idiom that doesn't translate into English. The yeah. HCSB would try to trans... It's, it's technically not a translation at that point, but uh, communicate what the idiom was trying to communicate from the original. So, for an example, uh, I believe it's in the book of Amos, where God is giving a, a judgment upon the people, and he says that I'm going to bring you cleanness of teeth. Well, that's a Hebrew idiom that me that's stands for starvation and hunger, because they're not going to have anything to eat. Right. Their teeth are going to be clean. Where we might read that in our English and go, cleanness of teeth, why is that such a bad thing? Well, the HCSB re renders that as, I'm going to bring you starvation or famine or, or hunger. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the translation is, but, but that's, and I liked that because it, it aided clarity to me. It, it brought about clarity while reading it. It's a very, it was a very simple, it flowed, it read really nicely. I did a lot of my personal study in that book, in the HCSB, and liked it a lot. Still do. I still like the HCSB. So, yeah. Well, this conversation is only relevant until the Legacy Standard Bible uh, right. comes out the from Master Seminary, and we'll all repent for using other translations. It'll be the translations to end all translations, right? Exactly. It is going to be exciting, though, to look at that and see. But, well, ESV. ESV's good. We have common ground mm -hmm. in the ESV. Uh, I like the ESV. I, w I, w I was a reluctant switch to the ESV, actually. And you just have no relationship with NASB, huh? Uh, I would say I have no relationship. When I when I preach, I study at least six... Well, I shouldn't say study. I read at least six different translations in my study because I know this is what people have in the pew. Even if I'm preaching from one thing, they've got something else in, in their lap in front of them. So I want to know what the distinctions are, but I also am on the lookout for which translation, there are sometimes a translation that translates a phrase in a very helpful way, and I will highlight that in my sermon. I, while I'm preaching, I'll say, the ESV or the, the NASB or the, the King James even, it, there's a couple of times where I've even said the King James translates this in, in a really helpful way, and I'll, and I'll provide that. So I, I do have a, I have a relationship with a variety of, of uh, translations, but yeah. All right. Okay. Enough of that talk. <laughs> now let's talk about something really exciting: dispensationalism. Woohoo! Uh, yeah, you're the only one who said that. Right. Um, <laughs> no one said that with you. So go ahead and explain uh, maybe the real high seventy thousand foot view: classical dispensationalism, revised dispensationalism, and progressive dispensationalism. The three main flavors. Like the the three biggest differences, or something like that. How about that? In yeah. a way that people can understand and not go to sleep listening to it. Well, I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> yeah. So dispensationalism. So first of all, in in broad strokes, dispensationalism is a you could say a philosophy of his, of history that views. Uh, God having worked in different ways in successive ages to, uh, I don't to, to glorify Himself, right? God is working to glorify Himself through history, and He has done so in different ways in different ages in history. That's kind of 
a broad stroke, one sentence summary of what dispensationalism is. Different economies, not ages. Right. Yeah, the economy. Yeah, that's that's the good Ryrian uh, word. Is the uh, the economies. Um, anyway, <laughs> which uh, so in the classical model, you know, there's seven different dispensations ish, and uh, it's there's seven different ages, seven different economies, seven different ways that God is working in history, and. Um, Generally, it's viewed that there are two peoples of God. There's Israel and there's the church, and they have two different destinies. One is the earthly kingdom, one is the heavenly kingdom. And uh, I don't know if there's any other distinctions that need to be drawn out from classical. That's kind of the big... That divides it from Ryrian, anyway. But there should be a note that all dispensationalists, no matter what, do see that distinction between Israel and the church. Yes, absolutely. And we could do a full episode on this in the future, too, I guess. We're, we're going to say that in every episode. Probably. About a different topic, and then we'll never get to them. But, but, yeah. that is, um, but it's important to note that dispensationalists, by definition, see a distinction between Israel and the church, and how, but how they interact with each other and how history plays out, they see that differently. Right, because there's the sine qua non, which is the, the essentials of dispensationalism, is a, a consistent grammatical historical hermeneutic, a consistent distinction between Israel and the church, and the purpose of God in the world is bringing glory to himself. Uh, and that applies across all flavors of dispensationalism. But in classical, the Israel and the church are so distinct that even in eternity, they remain distinct and apart from each other with two different dwelling places. There's the earthly and the heavenly. In Ryrian dispensationalism, some of that has been was brought back together to where uh, there was one people of God, even though there's still a distinction between Israel and the church, there's one people of God, there's still seven dispensations, and uh, I'm trying to think what other key things would be different from classical. And we're talking about Charles Ryrie. Did you Charles say Ryrie. his yeah. name? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so people Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah. Yeah, and he's and yeah, still going to be committed to the seven dispensations, uh, yes. all the mm-hmm. way from the Garden of Eden through the, uh, I guess what's the Intrigue. last one? Is it Millennial the, Kingdom? I think North? is considered a a dispensation, and then from there it's just eternity. So I don't think it's considered yeah. a dispensation anymore. Yeah, and then more recently <laughs> there have been more developments with dispensational thought, and there is progressive dispensationalism which sees additional continuity between dispensations, sees fewer dispensations, so it sees four dispensations as opposed to seven, and there's a lot more continuity between the dispensations, and there's more continuity between Israel and the church, though they are still separate. Um, what else? Um, that's, that's pretty... Between, well, between Ryrie dispensationalism and progressive, there's the aspect of the throne. Right, yeah. So in... In progressive dispensationalism, they view uh, Jesus sitting on the throne of David now in an already aspect, while he still awaits the not yet part of of reigning in Jerusalem on earth physically. Uh, There's an already not yet aspect to the reign of Jesus Christ on the throne of David specifically, whereas in traditional Ryrian dispensationalism, Jesus is not yet sitting on the throne of David. That does not occur until Jesus Christ comes back to earth to set up his literal 1,000-year reign on earth in Jerusalem on the physical throne of David. 
And so we're bringing all this up to say, Ken, historically, you've identified more with the Ryrie. That's how you were taught and brought up um, for the most part, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's certainly that's certainly my my background. I I would say that as as long as I've been able to have a thought out for myself opinion, I've been somewhere between Rarian and progressive. I've never gone so far down the line to say I'm a progressive dispensationalist. I've never gotten that far. But I there are some things that make me say, you know what, I'm not where Charles Ryrie is, and that's. That's been as long as I've studied dispensationalism as a system, I could pretty well say that I'm not quite where Ryrie is. But and me, on the other hand, yeah, um, I'm not even a dispensationalist, so no, <laughs> just messing. Uh, sorry to disappoint you, <laughs> covenant theologians who are listening. Um, I'm also a dispensationalist, but I'm much more comfortable just identifying with the progressive uh, flavor of dispensationalism. That's Daryl Bach, Craig Blazing, Robert Saucy. Uh, Michael Vlock or Vlack, however you want to pronounce that, uh, at the Master Seminary. Uh, those men are the guys that I look to and trust on these issues um, above the others. So, yeah. Now that the way that plays out in our ministries, you would never even know, right? For the most part, I mean, unless we were teaching on a few specific texts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are certainly committed thoroughly. This is where it. it the differences between you and I, it's not, you're not going to see those as much, but yeah. the uh, the underlying hermeneutic, that permeates everything. Yeah. Right, because we yeah, are... In, in that area, we're kind of splitting hairs, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, boy, it sounds like we're just one and the same, but we're getting to some stuff coming up here <laughs> that is more and more different. Um, another thing that, if you look at recent history, our style of corporate worship on Sundays has been quite a bit different. You're in a church plant... I'm at an established church. You don't have a building. You're living like a nomad. We do have a building. We're in the same place, same time every Sunday. Um, the, what the elements of your service are going to be different than mine. Um, we've got a band and a hymn leader, um, and we have a, um, you know, our, the way we do communion is probably different. Our corporate prayer time is probably different. We have Sunday school classes, that sort of stuff. All of that is going to be different than your Sunday morning experience right now, right? Yeah. I mean, right now with my church plant, I don't have a Sunday morning experience <laughs> at the moment. When, uh, you know, right now with our church plant, we just have a, bi- a Sunday evening Bible study. You know, I do fellowship with another church, but uh, on Sunday mornings, but for, for the church plant itself, yeah pretty much all of the things that you just mentioned, we do not have. Mm-hmm. We will at some point begin to develop some of those things, but even then it may look different than than what you have going on over there in uh, Utah. Yes, certainly. And almost so. certainly will look different. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's we don't have monolithic corporate worship services, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm diversity within God's church. And there are pros and cons to both. I mean, uh, to be a small church with fewer resources, there are all kinds of cons that you see when you're in it. But then when you're on the other side, there are all kinds of pros that you see. Uh, You know, grass is always greener kind of thing. Right. Um, So, yeah. Yep, definitely. Um, 
One of the things I jotted down, and I'm not 100% sure how different we are on this, but methods of evangelism. Uh, what do you think? Are we are we different in our evangelistic methods? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by methods. Um, I mean, I, I engage in door-to-door. Well, at least I did before the coronavirus, anyway. Yeah. Uh, did a lot of door-to-door stuff. Um, have explored open-air preaching. Um, a lot of personal evangelism, just in everyday conversations. Big proponent mm-hmm. of that, and helping people develop that as a just a mindset in life for Christians to be engaged people in spiritual conversations on a daily basis. Yeah, one of the things that we do um, is we get little small teams together and go to populated areas, which has been hard since Corona. Uh, but we have either booklets or tracks that we take with us and try to get a bunch of them out. Like we went to BYU's campus, which is private property, kind of just parked in the public parking and strolled on in <laughs> and handed out a bunch of the What Time is Purple booklets mm. that we got through uh, Wretched Radio. Todd Friel's ministry um, led us to the source for that. And um, we, we've we done some uh, stuff on the internet that is a little more punchy, uh, where we've done some videos, some live videos, uh, live dialogue with uh, Mormons and other uh, people of other backgrounds. So... Yeah, so, a lot yeah, of, I mean, we, we've done some different stuff. I was going to say, a lot of a lot of your stuff, too, is, is going to be aimed at an LDS crowd because mm-hmm. of where you are in Utah. I mean, your your county is, what, upwards of 90% Mormon? Um, yeah, so we're, we're a county of 600,000, and we are, the latest numbers, it's probably a little high, 84% LDS. It's probably mm. more like 80% now identify LDS. But when you talk about 600,000 people, that's yeah. a ton of people. right. And us, there's hardly any LDS out where we are, so uh, we have a much different flavor of, of people, uh, different religious backgrounds where we are, so um, obviously we're not targeting people on that level. We're, we're looking you know, to have different kinds of conversations, um, but I mean, a lot, of, a lot of it is trying to you know, find out who's in your community and how can I communicate a message to them that they will understand and hear? Yeah. So, yeah. And this, I mean, a lot of this stuff, if we're approaching it the right way, these issues, they're not so much disagreements as they are just different ways of going about it, recognizing that it's okay to be different. So I I think I know one thing that you and I may have a slight disagreement over, uh, uh, that we've talked about before to some extent, not on the podcast, but just personally, uh, do you believe you ought to, I mean, not ought isn't the right word. Is it good to in, invite an unbeliever to church? Oh, yeah. So my view on that is, um, yes, semicolon. <laughs> um, you know, if you have uh, proclaimed the gospel to that person in one way, shape, or form before before doing it, if you have... Um, invited that person to some sort of a personal uh, interaction. So like invite that person over for dinner first or, um, you know, invite that person to uh, a coffee that you go get, uh, have that person in your house or have a personal interaction with that, that person. Um, 
I really, I don't encourage people to invite people to church. I actually encourage people, don't invite people to church if you're not willing to have that person over to dinner at your house first um, to really push back against that idea. Yes, and I take a little slightly different approach to that, I suppose. It's hard I, to I have, disagree with what I just said, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> um, I don't have a problem <laughs> with people inviting people to church, uh, unbelievers to church, because I'm looking for any possible avenue to expose someone to God's Word and have potential uh, follow-up conversations with them. Now, I am going to caveat it with some of, some of the same things that, that you have in the sense that um, I do want an individual to being personally sharing the gospel with these people and not thinking that they have done their job in evangelism if they've invited somebody to church. Inviting someone to church is not evangelism. That is not, that it's just not. Inviting yep. someone to church is not evangelism. But I have no problem with people doing it and bringing people to church, and I even encourage that. And with the thought that there's going to be some level of follow-up that happens with that person. I'm going to get contact information. I'm going to get things, something together to where, uh, and, and then from there, for that follow-up, I'm trying to organize and, and uh, get whoever invited that person and that person together as we get together to have that follow-up conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I I got saved um, through somebody initially inviting me to church. Um, so I, I recognize that God will use any means that he wants, um, but we do recognize that God does use means, and that mm -hmm. there are things that are outlined in Scripture for us um, to look at, and we see that no one in Scripture is inviting unbelievers into the fellowship of believers. In fact, 2 Corinthians 6, I think, makes a pretty strong argument that you shouldn't be inviting unbelievers to come in and mix. Um, but, of course, for the most part, people have the goal of them coming to be saved and to um, conform to the gospel, not to influence us with their worldly ideas, but to, right. for them to convert. Um, it's just... That's not the primary means that we see in Scripture. And we do both agree that the church is for believers. Yeah. So right. when yeah, I neither say— Neither one of us are seeker. Right. Yeah. When yeah. I say I'm, I have no problem inviting people to church, I'm not saying that because we're a seeker-sensitive church that's just, you know, trying to present ourselves in a way that's uh, attractive to unbelievers. Um that's not where we are. We, we, we exist for believers, but if someone's going to come and they're going to hear the Word of God and they're going to be exposed to the Word of God, that may lead to additional follow-up and questions and opportunities for the gospel. Yeah, I just, I, I just hate the idea of those in this congregation where I've been called a shepherd. I hate the idea of them being dependent or reliant on the church to do evangelism for them. Yeah, like I if agree they, If they too. think, well, if we can invite them to church and they can hear the gospel here, I've done my job. No, you right, haven't. Yeah. So you're actually being disobedient by not teaching them personally what Jesus has has instructed us, which is the Great Commission. You're supposed to do that. So I agree with you on that. Anyway, but, um, but we're both, when it comes to personal interactions, we're both presuppositional in our apologetics mm -hmm. approach. Um, pretty committed to that. And uh, yeah, okay. Um, holidays. Now, here's a pretty big difference. Yeah. I like to enjoy my freedom in Christ and celebrate the things that God has given us 
and you would rather... I like um, to enjoy my freedom in Christ <laughs> and abstain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so explain your view on holidays generally. That's probably the best place to, to start. So I should say I've mellowed on this quite a bit over the years. Would you say in Bible college you were pretty hyped up about it? Oh, yeah. That's Was that the height of it? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Okay. Yeah. I Yeah, I had... I had these annual blog posts. It's like the only time I put anything on my blog oh, was wow. Christmas time. <laughs> that was but your method of evangelism. That was, <laughs> <laughs> right. Here uh, I am, just yeah. convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. <laughs> Christmas is a sin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, man. <clears throat> No, so I, it wasn't necessarily all holidays. Uh, it was it was mainly just Christmas where I was really wrestling with a lot of the tensions involved with that holiday. With, you know, we say Christmas is about Jesus and stuff, and then we the way we go and practice it. As I was looking at it, I was like, this has nothing to do with Jesus. Like, there's so much commercialism and greed and selfishness within the church that. I don't know how we can ever actually say that this is about Christmas. And you can, yeah, people show up and do the, you know, there's the candlelight carols and, you know, we go caroling or, you know, there's the Christmas specific sermons and, and all that kind of stuff. We sing the Christmas carols in church and, and it's like, it, to Some me, of the just, greatest hymns ever written. Yeah. Yeah. It just smacked me as, okay, this is, this is us giving lip service to Jesus so that we can go live our, greedy, consumeristic mindset of, well, what, this is what I want for Christmas, and, oh, I didn't get what I wanted for Christmas, and so now I'm going to pout about it, and, and stuff like that, where it's like, seriously, this is not even a Christian holiday. That's where I was at. And where are you now? Um, you do New Year's gifts. Yeah, so I'm still... I. So we've tried to separate the, in our family, we've tried to separate some of the cultural observances of Christmas from the religious observances of Christmas. So we've tried to reserve Christmas itself for the religious aspect of, yes, this is about the birth of Christ, and this is why he came, and, and all of that aspect of things. And then the cultural things like gift-giving and stuff like that, we have shifted that over to New Year's Day, which is actually a practice in many um European countries, especially a lot of countries that were, uh, you know, um, under communism for years, they did that because then they could give gifts and not get thrown in jail for being Christians. Uh, they called it just a New Year's gift exchange. Um, uh, different motivations for the same practice, but yeah, so that's so, that's what I do now. Okay, and, so you've got, uh, in your church plant, you've got a building now. Mm -hmm. So, or a place to meet, not your own building, but a place to meet. Mm -hmm. And let's say that God just decides to pour out blessings on your church. And by Christmas time this year, say you've got 30 or 40 people coming to church. Um, and it's, it's Christmas time. How will you, as the lone elder there for the moment, how will you guide and direct this church that, that God has given you responsibility over in your stewardship? How will you direct them come Christmas time? regarding songs that you sing, decorations perhaps in the building, uh, teaching on this issue, etc. Yeah, so uh, the short answer to that is I don't know. <laughs> but not 
there's there's a long answer to where I have thought through some of those things, but a lot of the particulars I would still have to I'd say I would still have to work out. Um, generally speaking, we my family takes a kind of a low key approach to all holidays in general, um, and birthdays included and everything. We're just pretty relaxed about stuff. We don't get hyped up a lot about a lot of things. And so do you decorate the house at all any time of the year? No. No. Wow. But that's that's not necessarily because I have a conviction against it. It's just I don't You're want... just boring people. We get it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> what can I say? There's there's some yeah, there's some other history with that that don't I I'm not gonna go into right now. Okay, but, sure. Um is, 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 as far as the church goes, you know, I I, I th- you know, we'll probably sing Christmas carols, you know, that's, I won't have any problem with that. And, and I wouldn't. What's wrong with you? Come on, Ken. You Christmas carols, there the are world. so many awesome and incredible Christmas carols that I honestly and truly wish was, it was more culturally okay to sing them year round. And you know what? I've done it. We have, we have sung Christmas carols when I, I used to lead music at the last church plant I was a part of. And I would break out Christmas carols in April, in August, in good. whatever day, whenever I felt like it. We were breaking out some songs because they were good. just good songs. They're not just Christmas carols. They're just good songs. And, and let's admit it. There's a little bit of you that took some pleasure in saying, like, see, Christmas is all year round, not just this one time of the year, you pagans who celebrate with your trees. <laughs> there was a little bit. bit there was a little bit of you that was motivated <laughs> by that. Uh, I can neither, neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> Yeah, there's probably a little bit of that in there, but anyway. So, could and you then, see yourself like putting a Christmas tree up in the church, in the meeting where the church is meeting? Would you ever be okay with that, or would your conscience not allow that? I don't think my conscience would prevent that, but it's definitely not something that I would lead the charge on. If, so, if that was something that somebody wanted to do, eh, whatever, you know, I don't care. Like. This is the whole point of this, uh, recognizing this as a secondary or even third column issue, is that, okay, just because I don't get super hyped out, up about Christmas and am not going to break out all the stops and, and, and do everything imaginable doesn't mean that other people can't enjoy the holiday differently than I will. And if they want to decorate the church, well, it's not my church, right? It's it's It's... This is God's church, right? And and if someone wants to decorate it, and if that's going to be edifying for other people that are the present, got no problem with that. And now, I don't know if 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 I'm seeing this objectively correctly, or if it's just because we're having this conversation that I'm seeing this. But right above your head, it looks like there's a Santa Claus on top of your bookshelf. <laughs> is that a Santa? It's a gnome. Oh, uh, hold on, let me get it because it's got red. Uh, so yeah, I was just sitting here looking at this thing like, oh man, that's, he's got Santa Claus up there and he's talking about how much he hates Christmas. Huh? I was talking to the, uh, the audience. Yeah. And I want to know what you said anyway. So this is going to be great for those who are listening on podcast and not on video, (laughs) but. See if a Cubs hat. Oh, I knew it. It's a Chicago Cubs gnome. Yeah. looks like Santa Claus though. White beard, red shirt. Yep. Okay. Sorry, you, you had a thought before I brought up the gnome, and it's probably gone now. Yeah, I have no idea what it might have been. Okay. Well, uh, as far as holidays and me, I, Melissa's huge fan of holidays, and if I said, hey, we're not going to decorate for Christmas anymore or celebrate Christmas on Christmas morning and do presents under the tree, 
uh, she'd have a heart attack. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad that my conscience is just like, whatever, I don't care. Um, yeah. Yeah. And but I'd say it's comes, be- yeah. Oh, you said conscience. To me, it's not as much of a conscience issue, like for me, because it is a, it's just a preference issue. It's just like my conscience isn't bothered when I go to my family's house and they're celebrating Christmas way differently than I will in my house. It's not. And we do that. I mean, we travel for family. I've gone up to my folks' place. I've gone up to my wife's folks' place and they celebrate Christmas very differently than, than I would given the choice at my own home. And my conscience isn't bothered by being a part of that. But if your wife started dressing up your house in Christmas stuff um, every year and got really into it, that could potentially bother your conscience because it's your own house and with your own kids and everything else, right? And it's a, a month long and not just visiting and then going back home. I, I guess I, it depends on what the difference is between how much how would you, how much would you say this is parsing terms when I say okay I, I don't know that it bothers my conscience as much as I just don't like it. Okay, future episode, conscience versus preference. Okay, future episode, we'll talk about it. Yeah. I don't know if we're a good podcast if everything is a future episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I think that's pretty much done for the list. We've been going for a while, but I guess at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of things that are different. The biggest thing that we haven't talked about, the most important thing, well, we kind of touched on it, is that I am a Cubs fan and you are a Cardinals fan. Yeah. And as such, I am of the redeemed and you are of the reprobate. Wow. That's harsh. First column. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a gospel issue. <laughs> yeah, well, either way, we're both just kind of sitting here because neither one of our teams are playing right now. Soon. July 1st. Ridiculous. Soon. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, Anchor Outfitters, sponsor this episode. Go to anchoroutfitters.org. Use code DOTHEOLOGY for 10% off. Good good people over there. Great shirts over there. Check it out. Tweet and, us uh, all, the, uh, all the things that we are wrong about at DOTHEOLOGY. Let us know. Yeah. What, uh, what second column or third column issue uh, do you disagree with us about now that you've gotten to know us a little bit better? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell us how how much you don't like our theology. That'd be great. Uh, no press is bad press. So um, we've got some exciting episodes coming up. Uh, I hope that you're subscribed. If you haven't hit that subscribe button, go ahead and do that because our next episode is going to be an interview with Tim Challies. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Do Theology. <laughs>